be never wanting there. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, the strife will not be long. This day the noise of battle, the next the victor's song. Him that overcometh a crown of life shall be. He with the King of glory shall reign eternally. Please be seated. Good evening. You know, we talked about heaven this morning in our One Word series, and on many occasions I've preached on heaven or I've been asked questions concerning heaven, and often I talk about the glory of heaven, the indescribable beauty of heaven, talk about the snapshots we get of heaven from the Bible, all of them positive and encouraging, but then there are those who would ask the question, but if my loved one isn't in heaven with me, will it really be heaven? What about my spouse who didn't live their life in Christ? What about my child who fell away later in life? Is heaven really heaven if the people that I love are not there? It's a question that has been asked of me, and so I thought we would approach it tonight. I hope that we can find some concrete answers, but obviously the Bible doesn't address this issue specifically. But I think there are some things that we can glean from Scripture to help us maybe better formulate an answer here. I think it's important when answering questions like this to make certain that we don't give an erroneous conclusion just to make someone feel better. I think that happens all too often. I mean, how many of us have sat in a pew at a funeral and we knew the person who passed away? Perhaps we loved that person who passed away, but maybe they died outside the sphere of salvation. Maybe they were not a child of God. And as the preacher or whoever was conducting the service talked about them and all of those negative traits that they carried throughout their lives, they made them out to almost be virtuous. And by the end of it, you're thinking, are they talking about the same person that I knew? Because I don't remember them being that way, right? So many times we see someone preached into heaven at a funeral, and I don't think that's the right thing to do. My first funeral that I ever conducted, right out of the gate, I was a new preacher, a new minister in Cassville, Missouri. And there was a gentleman who had passed away, and no one was able to do the service because he didn't know anyone. He didn't go to church. He was not a religious man per se, but by all accounts was not even a really good guy. But I knew his daughter, she had attended church with us, and she asked if I would do the service. So imagine right out of the gate, the first sermon or funeral that you ever do as a young minister is for a guy you didn't know and a guy who's not a Christian and a guy who's really led a pretty ruthless life. That's difficult. 
But in the end, I think there's always good things you can focus on. There's always positives you can accentuate. Because the, the truth is that the person who is deceased, there's nothing you're going to say or do that's going to help them at that moment, right? All you can do is focus on the family and helping them and consoling them and maybe giving them some encouragement to live a life in Christ. But so many times, you see people reach or perhaps give erroneous advice or reach erroneous conclusions in trying to console somebody. In an effort just to make someone feel better, we def defer to our feelings or to maybe something that is not scriptural just to make someone feel better. Bottom line is this. When a person has died, their fate is sealed, whatever that fate is. And it's easy to comfort the family by proclaiming that their loved one is in heaven, maybe if all other indications state otherwise. I find it best to approach those situations very delicately, leaving final judgment up to God, of course. However, I also use caution not to contradict plain teaching of the Scripture either. Because we've all heard certain things like, so-and-so is looking down on us from heaven. We've heard things like, I know that he or she is still with me as my guardian angel. All good people go to heaven. We hear it in music or we see it in Hollywood or in entertainment where they fill in the holes and the things that maybe we don't understand or know much about with, with fantasy more than anything else. There's holes in the floor of heaven and her tears are pouring down, says a country song. If I could have a beer with Jesus, heaven knows I'd sip it nice and slow. I'd try to pick a place that ain't too crowded or gladly go wherever he wants to go. You can bet I'd order up a couple tall ones, tell the waitress, put them on my tab. I'd be sure to to let him do the talking, careful when I got the chance to ask. How'd you turn the other cheek to save a sorry soul like me? Do you hear the prayers I send? What happens when life ends and when you think you're coming back again? I'd tell everyone, but no one would believe it if I could have a beer with Jesus. It's not unusual that Hollywood or the music industry would take license because we understand that's the world, and the world is always trying to fill in the gaps, and we shouldn't expect them necessarily to know the biblical doctrine on certain teachings. But it's not just Hollywood, it's not just entertainment, it's, it's even religious folks that can reach some erroneous conclusions or that can come to some conclusions that are not biblical. Universalism is a very popular doctrine today. It's always been around, at least for the last uh, little while, but it's, it's gained popularity. And the idea with universalism is basically everyone is going to go to heaven. As long as you're a pretty decent person, you're going to make it. There's even an extreme branch of universalism that suggests that even Satan will be saved in the end and that he will be in heaven with everyone else. Folks, as hard as it is for us to grasp or to grapple with, not everyone goes to heaven. And the Bible is clear on that. And it's difficult sometimes for us to, to wrestle with that because we all have loved ones that we wonder about the eternal fate of their soul. We're not going to get in too deep into refuting universalism. That's for another time. But we have to steer clear of arguments or answers that, that are not biblical. And as I've stressed over and over again, this isn't about what I feel or what I like. This isn't about what do I want God to say. This is about what did God say. What is God saying? Not what do I want him to say. Sometimes it is suggested that 
we'll have no recollection or recognition of our loved ones in heaven. But you know, I, I read the Bible and I don't get that impression, do you? I don't get the impression from Scripture that we won't know each other in heaven. In fact, if you look at Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19, you have this picture of the afterlife that Jesus gives. And some people say, well, you know, that's just a parable. That's not really focusing on the afterlife. That's more of, you know, a, a parable about missed opportunities for the rich man. I don't believe that. Because there's some things within this parable that are very different than any other parable that Jesus gave. For instance, if you use the King James, I believe it reads, there was a certain man. That seems to indicate that this is real, that it's not just a parable. And then there's a, a proper name given, right? Lazarus. But either way, whether it's a parable or not, I think Jesus is giving this picture of the afterlife for a reason. And as he gives this picture of the afterlife, he shows that one, Lazarus, is in paradise. The other, the rich man, is in torment, and there was recognition. They knew Abraham. They knew one another, right? In 2 Samuel chapter 12, in verse 23 specifically, we see David is going to lose a son because of his sin with Bathsheba. God is going to take his infant son. And so David prays, he fasts, he weeps, and he mourns because he thinks, who knows, maybe God will spare his son. And when his son does die, David gets up, he washes himself, he eats, and he says, in essence, I cannot bring my son back, but I can go to him someday. And it seems that David had all confidence that he would see his infant son in heaven and that he would recognize him. The point is this, as much as we would like to provide an easy answer to this question, we have to be certain not to contradict Scripture in doing so. And I think some solutions that are meant to be soothing to the ears are just simply wrong. And sometimes we try to fill in some gaps that we just aren't capable of doing but I don't believe the answer is that we won't recognize each other in heaven, so therefore it's a moot point. I don't believe that. The reason this question is so difficult is because it touches virtually every one of us, right? You all know about my situation with my mother and, and trying to, to get her to understand uh, you know, Christianity and her need for a Savior and, and how those efforts, at the end of the day, did not prove fruitful. And she passed away a few years ago. And I think all of you probably have some sort of similar situation where you've lost a loved one who, um, who died outside the sphere of salvation, who, who died lost. And it hurts. And you struggle as you think about where they're at now and the eternal fate of their soul. And it's tough when we approach a question like this because it affects so many of us in a, on a very personal level. But I think we have to admit that there are some aspects concerning the eternal order of things that we simply cannot comprehend. Try as we may to understand that we just cannot, at least in our earthly condition. And you know, the Bible understands this, the Holy Spirit understood this, which is why we see certain terms that are used to help our finite minds grasp what it is that Jesus or the apostles or whoever else it was who was talking about it. For instance, we talked about this morning with heaven. Heaven's not a literal uh, city necessarily like Dallas or Chicago, but those are the terms that are used to help us in our present earthly condition understand something that is really indescribable, right? 
Does heaven literally have streets of gold and gates of pearl? No, I think that the Bible uses these kind of terms and, and this imagery to help us understand something that is really hard for us to fathom, right? And there's a term that we, that we commonly see employed in the Bible. It's called anthropomorphic. And what that means is anthropomorphic simply means giving or ascribing human attributes or human form to something that's not human. And the, the Holy Spirit did, did this through Scripture to help us understand or maybe grasp things that are hard for us to understand or maybe incomprehensible. An example would be Luke chapter 16 and verse 24. Again, the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is in the flame and wanted some cool water for his tongue. Did he really have a tongue in that spiritual state? I mean... We think his tongue's probably rotting in the ground, right? But that's an example of an anthropomorphic expression. Similar to this, we know that many of the declarations of Revelation use anthropomorphic details. The book of Revelation was written in apocalyptic language or symbolic language. And so we see, for instance, that God will wipe away every tear from our eye. In our spiritual body, do we have eyes? Do we have tears? So you see the anthropomorphic details there. This is probably a reference to the persecution that the first century Christians endured. A message like this found in Revelation would be very encouraging to them. It could also have to do with the pain and the heartache of, of, of broken hearts over lost loved ones, etc., that we endure in this life. The point is this, all of the horrible consequences of evil will be done away with. Sin and sorrow will vanish away. Somehow, we're not exactly sure how, God will soothe the hearts of his people and their former sadness will be eclipsed by heavenly joy. And so according to God's great promise, there are no tears in heaven. There's no sorrow. There's no sadness, only peace and joy and comfort. And therefore, if there are no tears in heaven, only joy, then the conclusion that must be reached is that the absence of our loved ones will not cause us to mourn eternally, right? I mean, is that not the conclusion we have to reach? So how's that going to come about? Will your mind be altered? Will your memory or your recollection be erased concerning those loved ones? I, I don't know. Think of it this way. If there were sorrow in heaven, then what makes it any better than this place, right? If heaven is a place where we still mourn and we still feel sadness, where there's still sorrow and pain and heartache, then what makes it any better than where we are right now? I realize that we are in the presence of God, and that is the best part of heaven, that we get to be with him for all eternity. But obviously for heaven to be heaven, it has to be a place where there are none of those things that we just mentioned. And the Bible speaks to that anyway, right? No mourning, no sin, no, no sadness. You know, when contemplating this question, I can't help but think about Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25, where Abraham, in reference to the destruction of Sodom, he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And so I... I kind of bank on this scripture. Is the God who is in control of everything, the creator, the sustainer of life, if he is in control, is there anything that we have to really worry about? 
Will not the Almighty God provide the exact right solution to our seemingly impossible questions? Can we not be confident in the fact that it is all in God's hands? Think about something else, though. Think about this. Most, if not all of us, have dealt with the loss of someone close to us who died in a state of disobedience. And in spite of that, we can all affirm, I think, that living the Christian life is still the best life to live, right? That no matter what happens to those around us, even those that we love dearly, the best life to live is still a life lived in Christ. Can we not all attest to the fact that despite our loss, we are still blessed in Christ? If such is the case with reference to earthly affairs, then will it not be so much grander in eternity? If a life lived in Christ here on earth is still the blessed life, the best life, then certainly we can bank on the reward that comes in eternity. And here's another thing. I hesitate to bring it up because it's not real encouraging to talk about. But can we not all admit that our current perception of sin still falls well short of how severe sin actually is toward a holy God? I mean, our perception of sin, I think we'd have to admit, is pretty diluted. And therefore, so is our perception of God's holiness, His absolute holiness. There is no question that we do not comprehend the magnitude of sin and wickedness. Not in our earthly state. We, we don't comprehend it on, on the level that we should. Notice what Jesus states regarding the wicked in Luke chapter 19, verse 27. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Certainly a passage we don't get too excited about, right? One that we might rather ignore. It makes us quite uncomfortable. But notice also Revelation 14, starting in verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Again, a very difficult passage to swallow. And not one that you commonly see on bumper stickers or stitched on pillows. It's a hard one. But it's in the Bible nonetheless. Some consider these two passages I just read completely out of harmony with the love and the grace and the mercy of God. But we serve a holy God. And no one likes to think of the cruelty of an eternal punishment. No one would wish that on anyone. Some people have so much trouble coming to grips with the idea of hell that they reject it, they ignore it, they gloss over it, they pretend it's not a biblical reality. I didn't bring all of this up for any other reason but to make the simple point that I think deserves some serious meditation on our part, and it's this. Isn't it possible that once we have escaped the deficiencies and the limitations of the flesh, that we will have a much clearer awareness of the heinousness 
and severity of sin. Let me repeat that. Isn't it possible that once we have escaped the deficiencies and limitations of the flesh, that we will have a much clearer awareness of the heinousness and severity of sin? I know that's not the possible solution we like to think about, or is all that encouraging, but I think in answering the question posed tonight, we've got to consider all possibilities. And I think one huge possibility is that we don't always weigh our sin or the sin of our loved ones in the same scale that God does. And I think that perhaps when we reach eternity, we will have a better understanding of the severity of sin before a holy God. I think we often underestimate the severity of sin. I think we often underestimate the holiness of God. And therefore, we struggle in understanding this, this, this difficult question and how we might can answer it. My grandfather was one of the finest people you would ever meet. I loved him dearly. Still think about him almost every day. He had a huge influence in my life. I talked about before, you know, growing up in a home that uh, was difficult at times, a broken home, and spending a lot of time with my grandfather, who was always there to encourage, to love on me, to support me. My grandfather passed away in 1994, and he was not a Christian. One of the biggest hindrances to me becoming a child of God was my grandfather. Because if I'm going to take in everything that I read in Scripture concerning salvation, concerning the church, concerning how to live and worship and all of those things, I have to do something. I have to admit that my grandfather was wrong. And you know how difficult that was? And it's what kept my mother from becoming a child of God. She said that. And so maybe this is not the best way to approach it, but here's what I said to my mom. I said, look, we're not the final judge and arbiter, thank goodness, right? But if Grandpa is in heaven, he's going to want you there. If he's not, he's not going to want you where he's at. At the end of the day, the only soul that you are responsible for, the only one that you can take care of, is yours. Back to Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus. The plea of the rich man, when he realized that his state was fixed, that he was not leaving torment, he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And I think the rich man speaks to us today as well. That when you boil it all down, when you, when you discuss this, this, this question and the answers to it, at the end of the day, what you have to come to is there's only one soul that you can take with you to heaven, and it's yours. And the rich man speaks to us. He had five brothers that I assumed he cared deeply about. Yet the rich man didn't hope and pray that his brothers would end up in torment with him so they could keep him company. No, he begged and pleaded with Abraham to send Lazarus to go and say something to them, to talk some sense in them, to try to, to get them to understand, you don't want to come here. You don't want to end up like me. There's only one soul that we're responsible for. 
please don't allow questions like this to sway you from from taking care of your soul and doing what you personally need to do. Because your soul and the eternal destination of your soul is the only thing you have control over. I realize as parents, we feel a grave responsibility, and we should, to help our kids get to heaven, to help our loved ones, our family get to heaven. But at the end of the day, our soul is the only one that we can take control of and, and do our very best to seek to make it to be in heaven with God for all eternity. We can set our kids on the right path, but they grow into adults and they make their own decisions, right? I could talk to my mother till I was blue in the face and, and at one point even said, don't talk to me about it anymore. I don't want to hear about it. She's got to make her own decisions. And that loved one that you worry so much about, they had to make their own decision. And so I want to encourage you and maybe even comfort you that don't drive yourself crazy with these questions, but at the end of the day, remember that your soul is valuable and it's the one that you have control over. Prepare now so that your fate is sealed, so that you can be assured that you get to spend eternity with the Heavenly Father. And whoever is there, you're going to be happy to see. Whoever is not there, I don't think you're going to mourn and cry and lament because I don't believe that's what heaven is. Why won't you? I don't know. If you have a need tonight that we can help you with, if you're not a child of God and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, then let's do that tonight. Maybe, maybe you're someone who needs the prayers and support of this church family. One thing that I have learned in gosh, 18 years of ministry, is that a lot of people have problems. A lot of people are broken. A lot of people are hurting. And if that describes you and you need the prayers and support of this church family, let us help you. If we can do something tonight to, to help you get back on the right path, because you're not on the right path, let us help you do that as well. As we say every week, don't leave here without being right with God. Dave's going to lead us in a song. If you have a need, come now as we stand and as we sing. Create in me a clean